Um, and today we're going to introduce Jim Van Ree, who's a PA. Um, he has his master's from um, University of Iowa, and he's the program director for Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, Department of Family and Community Medicine Physician Assistant Program. And uh, he's been involved in PA education for over 13 years. He's the author of the PA certification and recertification books published um, by Elsevier. Elsevier? Elsevier. Elsevier. Um, he has also authored a number of articles and been a presenter at local, state, and national level on a number of clinical medical, or sorry, clinical medicine and education topics. So please welcome Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody hear me okay? Okay. Um, what we're going to do in about four hours is I'm going to cover a bulk of what I cover in this board review course that I run. Um, I've been doing a board review course for about know, 11, 12 years now, uh, first at Western Michigan University and then down in uh, North Carolina. Um, I've now gotten to the point where I don't want to travel anymore much, so now I do it on live with Kaplan. Um, matter of fact, I start another course on Monday. Uh, we go um, Monday night. We do it three hours a session at night. And a matter of fact, I know that in the past, Kaplan has made a uh, deal um, with this organization on getting you guys a discount. So if it's not next week, but in the future, you want to take the Kaplan course, I've got the web address at the very end of the presentation. Um, I know in the past they've given you guys uh, from the Durham Society a $100 discount. Plus, I also, every time in your journal, I'm the one who writes the certification question, practice question in the journal. Yeah, you probably don't even read it. I don't blame you. You just skip those first few pages and just go right to the Durham stuff, right? Who cares about heart failure? So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through some of the major topics. First thing we're going to start off with is some stuff on testing and getting you ready. They've changed some things in the exam. Who's getting ready to recertify in the next year? Two years. Okay. They've actually lowered the number of questions for us. They realize we're old and that we can't sit there that long. So they've lowered it by 60 questions. They've taken an hour off our exam. So here's what we're going to go through. I'm going to pick major topics through each one of these categories. You'll notice no derm. Sorry, you don't want me to talk about derm. OK, first, test taking tips. The test is going to measure two things. One, knowledge. That's what they want to measure. That's the goal of the exam. The problem is any test also measures test taking skills. So some of this first little bit, I'm going to help you with some of those test taking skills so that you don't. The biggest thing I hear from students who are recertifying the first time, certifying the first time or recertifying is, I didn't finish. Well, that's a bad thing because every question you don't answer is automatically wrong. And if you're not answering five or six questions out of each block, your chances of passing are pretty low. So you gotta get them all answered. So it's like any other clinical skill, you gotta be good at taking exams. And if you haven't taken an exam in a while and you're recertifying, I know this is a plug for my book, but get any book. Just get practice questions and go through them. That's what you really need to do. Be prepared. You've got to know what's on the exam. I'll show you what's on the exam in a minute. You've got to be ready mentally. Don't worry about what others, students, you might be sitting there with somebody who's taken it for the first time, okay? And they looking at you, oh, you're recertifying? Oh, you're a PA. Oh, wow. Ooh, bow down. Yay, okay? Um, don't get too worried about it. Now, I know you specialize in an area. Um, first time I recertified, we still did it on paper. I was sitting next to this lady and we were taking one of our breaks and I said, well, what do you do? And she says, I do ortho. I said, oh, okay. She says, what do you do? I said, I do internal medicine. I said, what kind of ortho? She says, I specialize in carpal tunnel. She says, I got the hand question right. Okay. 
Um, the problem with a lot of people who are in specialties, though, when it comes to those questions, they actually overread them. And they look at the question and they go, there's no right answer, you're all wrong. Don't do that. You've got to step back and remember this is exam for primary care PAs, unless you're taking one of the specialty exams. Know your testing site, get there in time, dress accordingly. No supplies are allowed. They're going to take your cell phone, they're going to take your watch, they're going to take everything and put it in a little locker for you or give you a locker. No writing utensils, no paper, no nothing. Okay? They'll give you scrap paper, they'll give you a pencil, or they'll give you a whiteboard. Now the exam is scored two ways. It's norm referenced and it's criteria referenced. Norm reference means that every year we convert that, they convert that score to an average of 500. That way we can compare your research score, whether you just retook it or you're going to take it in the future, to people who recertified 10 years ago. That's so that we can they can compare over time, and as educators, we can compare over time for our students who've taken it the first time. But it's also criteria referenced. That means they know going in what the passing score is. For the pants, the first time test takers, it's 350. For the panry, uh, I, try, I asked them the other day in Vegas, and she wouldn't give me a straight answer. Um, it's around 360, 361, I heard. Okay, but she wouldn't give me a straight answer. Uh, and that's because that one varies a little bit from year to year, depending on how the test goes. Um, so, but for, it's around three, to equate that to a percentage, it's around 55 to 60 percent. You go, well, I can do that on exam. Now, this exam is hard. Now, the PANRE, you've got to take it every six years, as you know, you go to Pearson Learning Centers, you now have five hours to complete the exam. There's 240 questions instead of 300 questions. You get an hour for each block. You may not go back to another block once you finish one. So once you close out and submit that block of 60, you may not go back which stinks because at some point in one of the other blocks you're going to go, ah, that's the answer to the, f oh, I can't go back. So once you hit submit, you're done with that block of 60. You get 60 minutes to complete each block and there's usually a 45 minute uh, allowed for breaks. So you get about five hours and 45 minutes uh, to take the entire exam. I mean four, four hours and 25 minutes to take the entire exam. The exam period is now pretty much open. The only time they don't allow the exam to take place is between Christmas and New Year's. Otherwise, you can sign up for it just about any time you want. For the PANRI, it is practice focused. In other words, 60% of it is a generalist exam. How many of you have, many of you have um, recertified at least three times? Okay. Back in the old days, when we wrote on tablets, there was only one recertifying exam. It was considered primary care. Now they have still that generalist part of the exam, that 60%, but now the other 40%, you decide in advance what you would like. <clears throat> you can get either adult medicine, surgery, or primary care. The blueprint, they still follow the blueprint. Okay, so while it may be a surgery question, it still is off the NCCPA blueprint, which we'll talk about in a second. So the content is still the same, it's just the focus of the question is different. Now, for those of you who practice DERM, I don't know what to tell you, I think I'd pick primary care. They're more likely to have dermatological, more derm questions in there. Adult medicine tends to focus on abdomen and thorax type questions. But the percentage is still the same as well. I know 3% of the, or 5% of the exam I think is derm. Okay, you go, gee, it's the largest organ in the body, only 5%. How do you think I feel? I did hematology for eight years. That's only 3% of the exam. One point for each correct answer. Don't leave anything blank. Okay, never, ever, ever, ever. There's a little clock in the corner of the screen. You can turn it off, it comes back on at five minutes. If at five minutes the thing comes on and you still got 20 questions to go, either go really fast or just go through and click everything B or C or A, I don't care. Just don't leave it blank. 
If you guess, you at least got a chance to get it right. If you leave it blank, it's automatically wrong. They pull all the tests once everybody's done and they rescore it. They score them twice, actually, uh, and then they have the questions uh, validated. Now that the exam is offered more times during the year for the PANRI, it used to be only two windows a year. Now that it's offered more uh, frequently that you can take it any day, the test turnaround time is very quick. Um, I know, for example, for the pants, I was talking to some students uh, who I had had down at Wake Forest who just took the exam. The student took the exam on Wednesday. She found out on Thursday she passed. It's that kind of turnaround time. And they send you an email, which she was afraid to open. Um, back in the days when we took the exam and you got the scores by mail, you knew you passed if you got the small envelope. You knew you failed if you got the big envelope because the big envelope had the information for you to re-sign up for the exam in it. Also, the envelope came with PAC behind your name, which was pretty cool, too. So you knew it in advance. Now, the testing center, Pearson Testing Centers, there's a computer clock, as I mentioned. No supplies allowed. No personal belongings. They'll give you a, um, a locker. There was a big cheating uh, fiasco about five years ago now, and they have gotten very strict with um, the exam. What was happening is they were, people were leaving and they were talking, they would take the exam and then they, as soon as they would leave and in between breaks they would go and write down questions. And then they'd share those with their buddies. And pretty soon after a number of people taking the exam, the next group of people had quite a few of the exam questions. What they didn't realize is that they changed the exam. Um, there's six exams floating around at any one time and they redo, they change those six exams every 90 days and they mix and match all the questions and the stems are the, uh, the distractors within a question. So you could be sitting next to a person taking the same exam question bank, but have all different questions. But eventually, if you get enough people in to pull out questions, you're gonna eventually hit on it, and they did. So what they ended up doing is the two ringleaders, they actually penalized them $25,000 and they were not allowed to recertify for three years. This entire program, this was a program, unfortunately, everyone in the program had to recertify. Even if they were not involved at all, everyone in the program had to recertify. So um, they take this very seriously. The proctor, every time you leave the room, you will fingerprint in and out of the room at some centers. Um, if you leave in the middle, there's, once you begin a block, there's no clock stopping. But if you gotta go pee, you gotta go pee. And they'll let you go, otherwise it's a mess, okay? But if you leave in between, they mark your exam as an irregular exam, and they will screen that section. Because for all they know, you left to go to the bathroom but pulled out some index cards to find an answer to a question. So they will mark that exam as an irregular exam and look at it and see if all of a sudden where you stopped, all of a sudden you go, went back and there was a bunch of answers changed. That thing records every keystroke. So just be careful. You'll have to have two forms of ID and they better match. Um, if they don't match, you won't be allowed to take the exam. Trust me, I know this one for a fact. Uh, my social security card says Jim, my driver's license says James. That wasn't acceptable. So I gave him my Chase credit card, or my uh, Wachovia credit card at the time. That was okay. They took a credit card, but not my social security card. Check the NCCPA website for things, the names that they'll allow. Here's the content of the exam. Unfortunately, Durham's only 5%, but this is the breakdown. The top four, cardiovascular, pulmonary, GI, musculoskeletal, make up almost 50% of the exam. If that's all you were gonna do is focus in those areas, those would be the ones I would do. It's 50% of the exam. If you don't score at least 50% or better, 
the number I calculated one day was around 55. If you don't score at least 55% or better in those four categories, you have to blow the other categories out of the water. The problem is you say, well, I'll make up my points in Durham. Well, 5% times 240 questions is how many questions? Not very many. Not enough there to make up for that poor cardiology section. So yes, you're going to have to remember how to read an EKG, okay? The one with the squiggly lines on it, okay? So there's the categories. Then they break them down by task and objectives. Clinical therapeutics, formulating diagnosis, and history taking are by far the more common ones. They make up a bulk of the exam again. Now, when you walk in, dump all the information you can on that uh, papers they give you. They'll give you scrap paper, pencil. They're gonna, if they give you 10 sheets of paper, they're going to want 10 sheets back. If you only give them nine sheets back, another check on the exam for irregularity. Okay? They're very, I'm not kidding, they're very strict about this stuff. Um, they actually have cameras in the rooms now so that the guy proctoring can watch all the different stations. So dump all the information. If you go, okay, I think I can remember this algorithm for arterial blood gases but write it down as soon as you walk in the room. Nothing says you can't write everything down on that piece of paper and use that as a study guide or as a testing guide when you go through the exam. You just won't be allowed to take the papers out of the room, that's all. So dump it all as you're walking in. Take that blank piece of paper and write it all down. You go, I can never remember the radiculopathies. You know, which one's L3, which one's L4. Make that little table, write it out. Dump all that down. Calculations, maybe you forget uh, how to calculate osmolality. Okay, write that down. Dump all that information, it's fine. Draw out flow charts. If there's, oh, here's the way I remember anemias, draw that flow chart out. Don't worry about normal labs. Normal ranges are on the computer. There's a little drop-down menu, you click on the button and the normal ranges come down. If it's not on there, it'll be in the question. A lot of times now they're eliminating the number from the question and just saying it's elevated. So instead of giving you, let's say, a gastrin level, they're just saying gastrin level is elevated. They're taking that little bit out. The more labs you know, though, like CBCs, electrolytes and stuff, the quicker you can do the question. If you have to keep going and toggling back and forth to the normal range chart, it's going to take you longer to take the exam. Uh, budget your time. If you're practice taking questions, and when you practice taking questions, time yourself. If you do it enough, you'll build this internal clock in your head about well, how long a minute is. If you're taking longer than a minute for a question, you're not going to get done in time. I tell people when they take my courses, you've got to be able to do a question in 45 seconds because you want that extra 15 seconds at the end to go back and review questions that you didn't maybe know the answer to right away. So you can build this internal clock. So if you're going to sit down and take questions out of a review book and you say, okay, I'm going to do these 30 questions, set a timer for 30 minutes and then take the questions. Okay, don't do it like a lot of people do. Well, I'll take a question in between the commercial break of Seinfeld reruns. That doesn't work. Or I'll go through questions while I'm sitting out by the pool. Yeah, okay. You've got to put yourself in the testing situation. And unless you think you're going to be testing out by the pool, which I don't think Pearson has anything's out by the pool, you need to practice the exam in the same environment you're going to be taking it in. Plan to use your entire time while you're there. This is not the time to say, okay, you guys, I'll meet you for lunch. I should be done in two hours. No, you need to take the whole time. And make educated guesses. You can go back to questions later, but don't ever leave it blank. Don't mark it. You can mark it for review later, but don't leave it blank. You may not have time. When the clock is done, when your testing time is done, you're allowed to answer the question you're on, and that's it. And then it'll have to close. So make sure you've got some time. 
As for drugs, there's a thing on the bottom there. They, uh, generic names for common names like penicillin, erythromycin, but then generic and trade for others, but they'll never do just the trade name. And the reason they don't is because trade name, what's a common name for this ACE inhibitor versus um, um, this ACE inhibitor might be different in different parts of the country. So they try to get away from uh, using the uh, trade name. So it'll be generic or generic and trade. Now, the A-type questions only, multiple choice, four to five options. Negative questions are very rare. Most of them now have a clinical scenario, and all the clinical scenarios are laid out the same. Identifying data, physical exam, uh, or identifying data, history, physical exam, labs, and then the question. They'll never do labs, and then the identifying data, and then the physical exam, and then the history. It always follows the same format. You've got a minute, as I said. Uh, try to answer the questions before looking at the choices. Read the scenario and come up with the answer in your head. Go, oh, I read that, that's uh, iron deficiency anemia. Then look to see if that's down there. If it is, great. If it's not, then pick the best answer. Now, a lot of times, those of you who recertified recently, how many times did you sit there and you go, ooh, I narrowed it down to two answers? Don't you hate that? Oh, God. That's what they want, though, okay? When you write a really good question, that's what you want. You like to see all of the distractors be used by somebody, but you really want people walking out going, gee, I narrowed it down to these two. And that's the case in this exam. They want the best answer. They want the most specific answer. If one is more specific than the other, that's the answer. Um, eliminate unlikely. We'll talk a little bit about looking for clue words and numbers. Avoid reading into the questions. Don't assume anything. Students do this all the time, okay? They do it on the exams I write for the PA program. Well, I thought they were a smoker. Does it say in the question they're a smoker? Well, no, but I thought they were. Don't think. Take the exam, okay? Don't assume anything. If it's not in the question, it's not there. What they put in the question, though, is really relevant. These are not long questions. These are not going to be paragraph after paragraph long. They're usually just a paragraph at the most. So you've got to look for keywords. And there is the thing about don't change answers. There's actually been studies done that show 55, a little over 55 to 60% of the time, you're more likely to change it to a wrong answer. If you change that question a third time, you're now up to 75 to 85% chance you're gonna change it to the wrong answer. So unless there's something that came up in an ex a pre another question later on, or all of a sudden the light bulb comes on, or you misread the question when you go back and review it, don't change it. Your first thought is probably the best. So I tell people to go through the exam in three phases. Go through it, answer those questions you're confident you know the answer to, saves time, builds up confidence, uh, but don't leave anything blank. Then go through, mark those that you want to review, then go through and look at those. Eliminate the options. You need to work fast here. You want to get through the entire exam, I tell people, in about 40 minutes in that block. Then it gives you 20 minutes left to go back and look at those questions. Now I had one person who took my Kaplan course once who was recertifying. Um, for the second time come to me and say, well, that's great, but um, I'll be done with step one in about two minutes because I don't know the answers to any of them. I said, well, you might want to delay when you take the exam then because you're not prepared. You should still be able to do about 45 to 50 of those questions that first time through and feel comfortable with them. Then you go through and eliminate incorrect answers, and then if you don't still have a clue, then guess. As for test anxiety, we could spend a whole hour talking about that. Um, you got to keep a positive attitude, concentrate on the exam, focus on the questions, be relaxed, be prepared, practice, practice, practice. People always ask me about when they recertify, should I take it a year early? Um, 
I guess. I don't tell you. It's up to you. People always say, well, am I ready for the exam? I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, only you know when you're ready. Okay. Well, I took these exam board type questions and I got this percentage. Am I ready? I don't know. Do you feel ready? Yeah. Well, then you're ready. Do you feel ready? No. Well, then I would delay. Only you know. No test helper book anything. Only you know if you're ready or not. Uh, and that's the key. But be prepared. Um, <clears throat> how to pass the exam? You're going to have to know the medical information. Um, I used to give a test-taking tips course to undergrad students when I was in Michigan, um, which the faculty hated in other departments because I would teach them all these test-taking tips. You know, look for these little clues, look for this, because people are lousy test writers by nature. They, they just are. Um, so I used to teach this course, this one-hour session, and it would, people could do, I could take an exam in just about any category and pass it. May not get a great score, but pass it just because I know how to take the exam because of the way people throw clues into questions, especially their distractors. Unfortunately, that doesn't work in this exam. Okay? This is written by professional test writers. The questions are written by us. There are people in all areas of expertise in the PA world who write the questions. They hand them over to the psychometricians who work on the questions and clean them up and focus them and make them clean of all these little things. But they're all written by clinicians, physicians and PAs, mainly PAs who write the exam, both the pants and the panry. I just want to go through some of these do's and don'ts. I'm not going to go through each one of them. I just want to highlight a couple of them. The first one, though, do practice what you're going to do on the exam. That is answering multiple choice questions on a computer if you can. Okay? Some of the review books, um, mine for example, uh, another plug there, uh, does have two full exams on a website. You go to the website, you plug it, you put in your password and your code, and you can take two full exams. The NCCPA sells questions that you can do online. And they're good they're old board questions. <clears throat> the problem is their feedback. The feedback you get from the NCCPA is you need work in cardiology. Okay, great. Which ones did I get wrong? No, you just need work in cardiology. That's great. Which one did I get wrong? They won't tell you which one of the practice questions you took you got right or wrong. They'll just give you a thing for each of the topics, cardiology, pulmonary, GI, whatever, where you are, whether you need work, you're doing great, whatever, that's all. So it's good practice. You can get, you can, I think it's 25 bucks, you get 125 or 130 questions, but the feedback is lousy. Uh, I don't know why they don't change that, but it just tells you certain areas that you need. If you're going to take practice questions out of a review book or whatever, make sure they have explanations in them, not just the correct answer. Because if you got it wrong, wouldn't you like to know why? So make sure the explanations are there as well. Um, do direct your studying uh, primary care areas of which you're least familiar. Don't spend your time reviewing dermatology. Okay? Um, I do this same little mini talk for another specialty group. Uh, I've done it once before, and the thing I get is you got to, you basically, in a specialty area, because I had the same problem when I'd take the hematology questions, is you barely have to dumb yourself down. You have to think at a primary care level. You may be practicing specialty derm, or I was doing inpatient hematology, and I had to, you have to bring it down. Remember, this exam is for primary care PAs. Okay, so you got to remember that. Go to the PANTS uh, NCCPA website, the second bullet there, nccpa.net. 
before you take the exam, look, go through their website, read the ethics uh, section, go through the setup, go through what the protocol is. There's a few practice questions on there even. Just be familiar with what you're going to be experiencing. So when you get there, there's no surprises. Examine the computer station that you're assigned. If you don't like it, ask to be moved. Okay? There's a draft on you, ask to be moved. If they put you right by the door where everybody's going to be going in and out all day, ask to be moved. If there's a station, they'll move you. Um, ask for the earplugs. They won't allow you to bring your own in. You can't, well, I take an exam best if I'm listening to my iPod. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Okay? They're not going to allow that to happen. They will give you disposable earplugs. Okay? Put those in. I really recommend them um, because it keeps all that background noise out. Most of the testing centers are set up where everything occurs behind you. The only thing in front of you is your computer and then there's walls on the side of you from these little mini desks. Um, so uh, get the earplugs so you don't hear the noise behind you. It can be really distracting. Uh, pace yourself, as I said, make sure you get a figure about a minute per question. And then the third bullet there, what would you expect a primary care physician assistant to know? That's the key, especially with recertifying if you're in a specialty area. Um, let's see, there was one due on here too. Oh, the second to the bottom one. Do eliminate choices containing completely unfamiliar words as distractors. If you don't know what the word is, it's probably not the right answer, okay? I get students all the time, well, that's got to be it because I don't know what that is. No, odds are it's not it, okay? Remember, this is primary care again. So if you don't know what the word is, that's probably not the right answer. They are not out to trick you, okay? If they were, they could, okay? They could make this really... The test is meant to determine if you as a PA have the minimum competency required to take care of patients. That's all it's meant to measure. I love it when people afterwards, oh, I was in the 99th percentile. Whoop-de-doo, I still have C behind my name as you do, okay? And I probably make more money per hour than they do, okay? So it doesn't matter, okay? Uh, that percentile ranking, all you need is, if the cutoff is 360, all you need is 360 to pass. If you get 359, you fail. Um, I used to tell people if they score one point or two points below the cutoff to um, ask the NCCPA to rescore the exam. That's always worth it. It's never changed anything. Sometimes you can even debate a question with them. I've never known them to turn a question around and give another answer. So uh, if they do, let me know. Um, oh, the top one there. Do EKGs and chest x-ray questions backwards? Um, if you're like a lot of people who don't do either one of those a lot, uh, this is especially true for the students I train with EKGs, I teach them how to read EKGs. And most students, when they read an EKG, it takes them about 10 minutes. They gotta look at the P wave in every lead, and then the QRS wave in every lead, and it takes them 10, you don't have 10 minutes. Work EKGs and chest x-rays backwards, okay? Read the scenario, glance at the x-ray, look at the choices. And then use those choices to tell you what to look for in the EKG or chest x-ray. So for example, it's an EKG. They give you the scenario, question A is atrial, or option A is atrial fibrillation. Go back up and look at the EKG and go, okay, do I see irregular, irregular R to R intervals and P waves, and no P waves. Oh, I see P waves, it can't be AFib. Second one is atrial flutter. Okay, I'm looking for that sawtooth pattern. Ah, that looks like a sawtooth pattern. It's probably B. Work them backwards. Don't sit there and try to interpret this EKG for 10 minutes and then look for the answer work those questions backwards. It works great for chest x-rays as well, 
If option A is a right lower lobe infiltrate, look, look in the right lower lobe. Ah, there's nothing there. Well, that's not a right answer. So work those questions backwards. Some don'ts, don't cram at the last minute, okay? Um, this is not the time, okay, I gotta take the test tomorrow. I bought that review book, I guess I'll open it today. Okay, not gonna work. Uh, don't eat a large meal within two hours of beginning the exam. Now they can start the exam. It used to be, didn't worry about this because you started the exam at eight in the morning because it was a six to hour exam or so. Now Pearson is starting to stay late, open late. So they'll start exams around noon. Don't eat a large meal. Where's all that blood go? To your gut. Where do you want it? To your brain. Don't leave anything blank, as I said. Um, oh, don't become irate over seemingly absurd questions. This one isn't so important anymore. Used to be that 60 questions on the exam were being field tested. <clears throat> they weren't part of your score. They were just being field tested. They don't do that anymore. The bank is now so big that they don't have to put 60 questions in there anymore for field testing. They still do a few, but not very many at all. Um, so those absurd questions that didn't make any sense, those are gone. They should be anyway. Now you may still think it's absurd, but remember it was a fellow PA who wrote that question who thought it was important. Okay, that was hopefully some tips on getting you through the exam. Now we're gonna go through some of the topics related to the, the medicine part. First, congestive heart failure. Uh, this is a state where your cardiac function can't meet the demands of the body metabolism. So the body's doing something uh, and the heart can't get enough blood there as a pump. Major causes, valvular disease, coronary artery disease, arrhythmias, hypothyroidism, hypertension, cardiomyopathy. The two biggies, if I can get the thing to work here, are coronary artery disease and hypertension. Don't worry too much about all what's going on here, vasoconstriction. I think I did this just to scare people. Um, but the big thing is, is as a pump, it's not effective anymore. Now, physical exam-wise, um, clinically, dyspnea, orthopnea, proxismal nocturnal dyspnea, waking up in the night, middle of the night, short of breath, fatigue, edema, classic, but also found in a ton of other things. Now, JVD, RALS, tachycardia, displaced PMI, and S3 is common in physical exam. Now, when it comes to this S3, whenever on the exam you see an S3, think heart failure of some sort. I'm not gonna go through the dilated cardiomyopathies and the hypertrophic cardiomyopathies and restrictive cardiomyopathies, at least I don't think I put them on here. But when you see an S3 in the question, think about heart failure. If they put an S4 in, think myocardial infarction. I know that's not 100%, but this section I'm doing here now is not so much for clinical practice as it is to get you ready for the exam. And one of the little things that can help you eliminate some choices is S3, think failure, S4, think MI. EKG, really nonspecific, a left ventricular hypertrophy. Check for an MI as the underlying cause for their heart failure. BNP, uh, B-type or brain natriuretic peptide. Um, if it's, oh, the bottom of this got cut off. Hmm. My screen's too, it's not big enough. Um, if it's greater than 500, it actually is diagnostic for failure. Less than 100 is no failure. The other comment I wanna make here is for right-sided failure, you're gonna see systemic signs. This is the person who gets the edema, who gets the JVD. Left-sided failure, people get the pulmonary complaints. Now, what's the most common cause of right-sided heart failure? Left-sided heart failure. So most people have both. Pure right-sided heart failure is really only seen in patients who have pulmonary disease. 
people who have core who develop core pulmonality from like COPD. Um, but right-sided failure patients think systemic symptoms. So they're the ones with the JVD, uh, they're the ones with the peripheral edema, they're the ones with the hepatojugular uh, reflux. The left-sided failure patients are the ones with the RALs. They're the ones with the shortness of breath, the dyspnea, um, the RALs on exam. The problem is in real life, almost everybody has both. But on the exam, they can separate them out. Now, what you're gonna look for on chest X-ray, cardiomegaly on this film, you can definitely see that the chest, the heart, is definitely more than half the thorax. And you can do this. The computer screen's great. It's usually a bigger screen, and it's great for chest x-rays. The quality of the photographs and the EKGs and the chest x-rays are wonderful. They are now starting to show some physical exam findings as well. So our previous one with the JVD, that could be a photograph on the exam. Okay, it's not all... EKGs, chest x-rays, and derm photos, uh, rashes and stuff. They are starting to show some physical exam things. But cardiomegaly, heart bigger than half the thoracic cavity at its widest point, uh, increased pulmonary vasculature, I get my, so increased vasculature here and here, curly B lines, pleural fusions, these are curly B lines, these horizontal lines in the periphery, there's three of them right here. And that's all due to fluid in the interstitial space. Um, echo will show the dysfunction. Decreased ejection fraction is what you're really looking for. We're talking about ejection fractions. Normal's around 50 to 55%. We're looking for less than 30% here. If it's less than 20, that's really severe. Treatment is the underlying cause. So if it's valvular heart disease, treat the valvular heart disease. If it's a coronary, treat the coronary disease. Uh, low sodium DASH diet. Um, diuretics, ACE inhibitors, or ARBs. Um, the only time you'd pick ARBs over ACE inhibitors um, is a, if they're contraindicated or if they have the cough. If somebody's taking an ACE inhibitor and they're having the ACE cough, the ARBs are fine because they don't have that Brady-Kinnon effect. Yes? Yeah. Better be. I'm assuming it is. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to write this all down. Okay. Yeah, write it all down. Here, we'll go really fast. No, it should be all in there. It's all in my book, too. That was subtle, wasn't it? Um, use vasodilators when the ACEs aren't uh, possible or if they've got renal failure and you don't want to give them an ACE inhibitor, then you could use one of the others. Uh, beta blockers, uh, that's starting to change a little bit. Oh, <clears throat> that brings up a good point. Your exam that you're going to take whenever you do take it was actually prepared two years or so prior. Nothing cutting edge will be on your exam, and you can use that to your advantage. For example, HIV treatment, AIDS treatment. That protocols change and new drugs come along just about every other day, okay? They're not going to ask you full-blown protocols for that. They're going to ask you broad general questions about treatment and maybe side effects of some of the drugs. Same thing with chemotherapy. They can't ask you questions, because if they ask you a question about what's the treatment of choice chemotherapy-wise for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, it may have changed since the time. Um, a few years ago, when the JNC7 came out for hypertension, they were freaking out, because <clears throat> there's a lot of hypertension questions on the exam, <clears throat> and they were worried that they were gonna dramatically change the JNC guidelines for hypertension. They didn't change them that dramatically, but that's the kind of stuff you don't have to worry about, because your exam was put together probably two years prior. Angina. <clears throat> This is the way I feel sometimes. This is the way you'll feel taking the exam, probably, this guy right here. Um, 
A symptom, pain builds up rapidly in 30 seconds, disappears within five to 15 minutes. Stable means it's precipitated by activity and relieved by rest, that's the key. If they get better, if the pain goes away with rest, that's stable angina. If it doesn't go away with rest, that's unstable angina, okay? And this is all due to a fixed stenosis in the coronary artery. Aching, dull, substernal pain, radiating to the neck, left arm, shoulder, can look just like an MI. But the key, once again, is does the pain get better with rest? And how long does it last? If it's MI, that pain is gonna last. Usually on the questions, they'll talk about it lasting 30 minutes or more. On physical exam, you may get an S3, especially if the uh, heart disease is putting them into failure, or an S4 again. Enzymes will all be negative. That's another key here to help you separate out this from myocardial infarction. So the CPK or CK, the troponin, the myoglobin, all those will be negative. May show some ST depression, T waves, but the most common thing, especially most patients who come in uh, to the ER with stable angina, by the time they got there, the angina is gone. Their EKG is then normal. So watch that in the question. If they say a patient presents to the ER, with a complaint of chest pain 30 minutes ago, they're now pain-free, the EKG will be normal, okay? Don't eliminate things. Don't say, oh, gee, it can't be angina or it can't be heart because the EKG's normal. It still could be stable angina, okay? So read the question closely. Um, diagnosis, positive uh, stress test. Remember, there are some people you don't put on a stress, you don't put on a treadmill. Um, aortic stenosis patients shouldn't go on treadmills. They don't do well, they tend to die. Um, so if the person's gotta uh, watch for that in the question, um, if they've got a murmur, and I think we go over some of the murmurs, consistent with aortic stenosis, even though if it's angina, the aortic stenosis could actually be the cause of their angina, don't put them on a treadmill. Other things to do, stop smoking, control their hypertension, their diabetes exercise, uh, manage their lipids, antiplatelet medications such as just good old aspirin, beta blockers, uh, control the symptoms, beta blockers, nitrates, long acting or short acting, uh, the calcium channel blockers, and the other big thing uh, that they'll get is revascularization. That reminds me of another thing. 20% of the exam, no matter what one you take, is gonna be surgical types of questions, no matter what. Um, if you take the surgery component of the PANRI, it'll be more, but even the general exam is 20% um, surgery questions. If you sign up to take the surgery component or you take the adult medicine component, there's still gonna be pediatric questions on there as well. Remember, the 60% of it that's general still covers everything. Unstable angina, uh, this is either new onset angina, increasing angina, or angina that now occurs at rest. Same type of signs and symptoms. Uh, same type of location of the pain, same description. The only difference is it doesn't get better with rest. Exams typically normal. The S4 again, remember, S4 for anything that's chest pain, myocardial infarction, angina. EKG's normal, enzymes are normal. It's not until the angina progresses to actual death of the heart tissue that you get the abnormal um, enzymes. Now, treatment here, once again, is to reduce progression to an acute MI, so antiplatelet drugs, um, beta blockers, again, ACE inhibitors, and revascularization. I go through a lot of the drugs in this session fast because otherwise I'm never gonna get through everything. So I'm gonna talk about them in groups, not so much by individual drugs. Now, ischemic heart disease, um, 
watch for this in the question. They'll give you identifiable factors. Um, everybody, I think, would nobody would miss the one where they tell you, a uh, 55-year-old gentleman, while out shoveling snow, okay, everybody would go, oh, I understand, that's an MI, right? Don't forget about the next one. Suffer mental stress, anger, or a large meal. That's always one of my favorites to put in questions. After eating this large meal, the patient complains of, because now you've got to think about, is it heart or is it GI? And that's what they want to do on this exam. They want to see if you can pick out these things and separate them out. Everybody gets the one right about shoveling snow or mowing the lawn. That's another favorite, okay? Those are easy, okay? The idea is, do you know that other things other than just that heavy exercise cause uh, heart attacks? Usually they'll talk about a history of some type of unstable angina, um, and then watch for the most deaths occur due to ventricular fibrillation. Other risk factors, um, I love this photo of the couch potato. That's so cool. Um, increasing age, positive family history. Now, positive family history means um, men, if you had a family member, female under the age of uh, 55, or males under the age of 60 who had a prior coronary event. If in the question they say a uh, parent died of a heart attack at age 85, that's not a risk factor, okay? Unless they're younger. Uh, hyperlipidemia, obesity, um, it's probably not so much the obesity as it is the uh, waist uh, uh, girth. Smoking, diabetes, stress, sedentary lifestyle, male gender, watch for these risk factors in the questions. They're not gonna give you all of them, they may only give you one or two of them, but they should be a triggers about for myocardial infarction. The key thing here to separate these out from angina is this prolonged pain. The pain's still the same location, it can be the same quality, but it's 30 minutes to an hour. All the angina ones were less than that. Other signs and symptoms, nausea and vomiting, 50% uh, of them, if it, there's nausea and vomiting, it's probably an inferior wall MI um, because of its location, weakness, dizziness, palpitations, uh, all the classic the other things we've learned about in the past for myocardial. But the big thing is how long the pain is. Physical exam, typically totally normal. Maybe an S4, maybe some elevated blood pressure, but nothing specific. I put this differential in here um, just so that you remember there's other things besides the MI that cause the chest pain. Um, pericarditis, uh, Typically, the classic thing there they'll talk about is that the pain is better when the patient leans forward. It takes that heart, kind of hangs it out there a little bit in the chest cavity, and the pain goes away. Uh, pulmonary embolism, uh, you probably have to get a D-dimer or something for that one. I think we're going to talk about that one in a little bit. Aortic dissection is typically diagnosed as a severe tearing type of pain. Costochondritis, they'll talk about point tenderness uh, along the sternum. Esophageal rupture, I don't think you'll confuse that one. Uh, they tend to get really sick really fast. Don't forget about um, GI disorders. And the other one I didn't put on here is pneumonia. It can also cause um, chest pain. I don't know what's happening to my, must be the formatting. Laboratory-wise, the white count will be elevated, lipid profile, but the one I want to focus on is the marker, CPK, troponin, and myoglobin. And this little table here at the bottom is I've taken and narrowed it down about as much as I dare narrow it down. Troponin is the test of choice, okay? It goes up in just a few, two to six hours, and it stays around the longest. This is the answer to the question where they say the person presents having had chest pain five days ago. Which test would you order? Troponin is the correct answer. If they ask about laboratory tests, actually your better answer would be a treadmill. 
because evidently it's stable angina. Creatinine kinase, or CK, goes up in three to six hours, lasts two to four days, and then myoglobin, uh, one to two hours. Myoglobin will be the first one that goes up, but myoglobin is very nonspecific. It's found in all tissues in the body. Okay, it can go up in heart disease, it can go up in vascular disease, it can go up in musculoskeletal disease, it can go up in anything. It's found in every tissue in the body, uh, but it'll be the first one to go up in a myocardial infarction just within a few hours. So if they give you this pattern of results or a number, series of results, they may be asking you to predict how long ago um, they had this episode, or you may need that information to determine what's the next treatment option. Now, EKGs, the pattern, ST elevation is the injury pattern. Uh, Q waves tells you that it's old. Other things that can cause ST elevations uh, from the baseline are pericarditis, uh, aneurysm, um, spasm, or uh, early repolarization. The early repolarization you'll see in people who've got left ventricular hypertrophy. Now, pericarditis, with that one, you'll see ST elevations in all the leads. And we'll talk in a second about how the lead pattern what leads there in the pattern can tell you where the MI is, but in pericarditis, they're across the board. Unless that person infarcted their entire heart, it's pericarditis. ST depression occurs with subendocardial ischemia, most often seen in non-Q-wave MIs. Got pictures here of which ones are normal. Uh, when it's that sharp slope down, almost to a point, uh, that's, that's okay. Uh, the differential diagnosis here, once again, hypertrophy, uh, conduction abnormalities, electrolyte abnormalities, and drug effects uh, are also in here. But when you're seeing these ST depressions, you've got um, usually a non-Q wave. They're not going to develop a Q wave later. You've got a non-Q wave MI. If you see Q waves on the EKG, that tells you the um, MI was old. This is the patterns. Once again, the slides, I don't know what happened here. Um, the pattern here, the affected wall, the EKG leads, don't worry about the reciprocal changes for the exam. Um, it's not gonna be, it's gonna take you too much time uh, to worry about those. Just focus on these. So if you see the EKG changes in leads two, three, and AVF, that's an inferior wall MI, and that's mainly the right coronary. It's within the scope of them to say, give you an EKG, have you interpret it, and ask which one of the arteries is involved. That tends to be a basic science question. Scientific concepts, which makes up 10% of the exam, is kind of the basic science stuff. Uh, it won't be so basic. It won't be things like, here's a picture of a bone. Tell me what bone this is. Okay? What they do is they incorporate the basic science into scenarios. So they might give you an EKG or a chest pain scenario with an EKG, and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to have to tell that this is an MI in fear. Oh, what artery? That's how they do the basic science questions. Everything is clinically relevant and clinically related. General treatment measures, aspirin, unless contraindicated. Um, analgesics, morphine is great uh, for this because it not only helps with their pain but drops their blood pressure uh, as long as their blood pressure is not too low already. Uh, nitrites the same way. Beta blockers are, unless there's an absolute contraindication to giving them a beta blocker, not doing it would be against the standard of care. And then oxygen, don't forget about oxygen. The other thing to remind, I remind myself of here is don't forget about the ABCs airway, breathing, circulation, okay? Um, because that always happens. ACLS is fair game, basic ACLS, okay? So it doesn't mean you gotta go out and take ACLS, but don't forget about some of the protocols. Somebody comes in with AFib, you know, or, um, 
a ventricular fibrillation, Annie, Annie, are you okay? I don't think that'll be one of the options. That would be cute though. Um, but don't forget about you know shock, defibrillation, epinephrine, those sorts of things. I don't think, remember this is primary care, I don't think they'll take you to the third, fourth choice option. I think that would be kind of cruel for primary care. So don't forget about things like oxygen uh, for patients. It's always an important thing. They like to breathe. Antiplatelet therapy, uh, aspirin, uh, which inhibits platelet aggregation. Uh, you can use some of the other drugs. Uh, Tyclopid, problem with the ticlid uh, is thrombocytopenia, neutropenia. They've got now the glyco glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitors. Um, for most people, when they ask me to go, oh, all these new cardiac drugs, you're the one who has to determine if you want to put the effort in or not to learn them all for that one question that might be on the exam related to this, okay? Um, I hate to tell you this, but when I do this course for students who are certifying for the first time, the one I tell them to put the least amount of time in is to derm and hematology. Because if they're playing their odds for the exam, 5% and 3% of the exam probably is not worth it if they're gonna not do cardiology in exchange for that. So I know it's awful of me, I, but I mentioned my own specialty area too, hematology. I don't mention infectious disease because that one is really important because it covers all the systems. So I still don't tell them they have to work on that one, but I do tell them that if they're gonna not study an area, it's heme and derm, so don't hurt me. Um, most of the students do well in derm though. So I don't know if it's because you guys precept students and do that great of a job. It's, no, it's not from my derm lectures, that's for sure. So you have to determine whether you want to focus in those areas or not based on these drugs. Uh, for the ACE inhibitors though, uh, everyone with an acute MI should get one. It helps with cardiac function and remodeling. Calcium channel blockers, this is one I do want to point out uh, right here. Um, Nifedipine. Um, we used to use this one. I worked in patient internal medicine. We used to use this one like candy in the hospital for hypertension. We'd put a, uh, have them poke a hole in the pill and inject a liquid underneath their tongue. And then a study came out that showed that it increased it in hospital mortality dramatically. So we kind of stopped doing that one. But some of the other ones, Ditalizem and Verapamil, actually may prevent reinfarction in non-Q wave MI, but nifedipine is contraindicated. In general, though, the calcium channel blockers are not recommended in acute MI, especially if they've got heart failure. Remember, the calcium channel blockers are contraindicated. There's a bug up here. Uh, are contraindicated in heart failure. Heparin, I uh, don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. Uh, inactivates thrombin, though I would like to. Um, indications, those not receiving thrombolytics, those with ST depression, and those getting TPA. So watch for the heparin on the questions. Um, the absolute contraindications, I, I never tell people to remember the relative contraindications because they're so, one, the list is long, but they're so nonspecific. Um, I think we're gonna talk about TB in a little bit, but if you gotta remember the absolute, and they're pretty easy to break down. If they're bleeding, okay, that makes sense, right? Wouldn't wanna give an anticoagulant to somebody who's bleeding. If they've had recent head trauma or known intracranial neoplasm because they could bleed, same thing with stroke. So if something's going on in their head, they're bleeding or they got an aortic dissection, those are the ones I don't give, to remember not to give uh, thrombolytics to. So instead of memorizing those six things, anything in the head, they're bleeding or aortic dissection, don't get antithrombolytics. 
Okay, moving on to endocarditis. This is infection that produces vegetations on the valves. It can be either native or prosthetic valves. There's predisposing conditions, mitral valve prolapse. You have to have significant regurgitation for mitral valve prolapse to be a risk factor. By far, the most common ones you're going to see that I mentioned on the exam is degenerative valvular disease and IV drug abusers. Now, it's fairly common. Um, mitral valve prolapse, um, if they have significant regurg, is a fair number of these. Um, rheumatic heart disease was a leading cause, but not anymore. The key thing is here at the bottom. Um, acute endocarditis is usually staph aureus, and it's usually fatal within six weeks. Subacute is the viridan strep, which is group D strep, like strep fecalis, um, the group D streps, or it can be the alpha streps as well. Um, these are usually uh, subacute and they're longer than six weeks up to a year become fatal. So it's really important that you be able to diagnose the acute endocarditis rapidly because it is rapidly fatal. For prosthetic, um, once again, this is important in the question because if they give you somebody with an artificial heart valve, it's really important to know when they had the surgery because it changes your treatment of op choices. If it's less than 60 days, by far the most common is staph. They got it from surgery. If it's over 60 days, it's most common strep from um, another source. So it's important to know how long ago they had the prostatic valve. So if they tell you a person had a heart valve, you know, six-year history of a prostatic heart valve, it's probably strep as your cause. The valves that are affected, for some reason, they seem to always throw this in the exam as well, what's the most common. Very few of the questions are going to be simple recall now. Most of them are scenario-driven. Okay, so those days of just memorizing a bunch of facts are kind of gone by the wayside. If it's community acquired, uh, staph aureus, strep viridans, enterococcus, if it's in the hospital patient, staph aureus, staph epi, enterococcus, fungal, fungal only if they are immunocompromised. And the biggest fungal one to worry about there, there's two of them, Canada albicans and aspergillus. And if it's aspergillus, they don't have a chance. I saw one case of an aspergillus endocarditis. The guy had a fungal ball in his uh, left atrium, uh, 21 years old. It had already invaded the heart tissue. It looked really cool on echo. Um, prostatic valve is staph epi, staph aureus, and enterococcus, as we just mentioned. Now, findings here can be very nonspecific. Fevers, chills, anorexia, weight loss, myalgias, heart murmur. Now, a new murmur, yes, I think everybody would get that one. If all of a sudden they said the person's got a five over six systolic murmur, I think ding, 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 you'd all be thinking endocarditis. Don't forget about the change in murmur. Person now has a four out of six murmur, whereas before it was one out of six. That's also significant. So it's not just a new murmur, it's a change in an old murmur. There are some classic findings, though, that just push you right to endocarditis. Janeway lesions, uh, which are these kind of petechial hemorrhagic uh, lesions on the bottom of the feet, um, think endocarditis. Osler nodes, uh, which they're hard to tell, but you can see them on this finger and this finger. They are little tender nodules um, on the pulps of the digits. Uh, those are Osler nodes. Same thing with finger clubbing I don't have a picture of. Uh, splinter hemorrhaging right here. Uh, Sumbungal. Uh, hemorrhage or subungal hemorrhaging, and then you can get these embolic phenomena in the eyes, you can get them in the larger vessels, but especially the Janeway, Splinter, and Osler nodes are classic for endocarditis. If they throw, put those in there, just look for endocarditis. The other thing now they're doing is they're stopping the common phrasing, okay? Um, 
for example, the, instead of saying that there's Janeway lesions present, they'll now describe them. Okay, they're getting away from, you know, we used to always, uh, varicocele, you'd say bag of worms, you know, it felt like a bag of worms on scrotal exam. They don't do that anymore. Now they actually describe the finding because everybody just kind of knew bag of worms, varicocele, and that's, they don't want to test that anymore. They want to test a little more knowledge than that. Diagnosis based on suspicion, laboratory evaluation, uh, echo, transthoracic versus transesophageal. If it's a person with an artificial heart valve, you've got to do a transesophageal. It's the test of choice. Otherwise, transthoracic. Um, blood cultures will be positive in fight apart in a number of these cases. If they're negative, you've got to consider some more unusual organisms. Um, Haemophilus parainfluenza. Canada actually grows fairly well in blood cultures. Uh, aspergillus does not, coxiella does not, and histoplasmosis does not. Now, anemia and leukocytosis are noted, elevated sed rate and CRP. These are more so for re monitoring response to therapy. If they ask you what you want to do to monitor if your person's getting better, uh, it's the sed rate because it'll have been high, usually in the 50-60 range at the time of diagnosis, and as you treat them and they get better, it should drop. You can use it for endocarditis and you can use it for osteomyelitis as well. Treatment, um, you've got to use bactericidal, not bacteriostatic drugs, and treat for four to six weeks. Here's the agents, uh, more common, what you want to use. The problem most of the time is they're not going to tell you what organism you've got. You're just going to have to pick um, what's most likely. So that's why you have to go back and go, oh, if it's a uh, prostatic heart valve and it's less than uh, 30 days, I'm going to have to think about staph aureus. That means I'm going to have to treat them with nafcillin, oxacillin, plus genomycin, or maybe give them vancomycin. Prophylaxis, this changed in 20, 2007. Uh, they changed the number of high-risk groups and procedures, thank goodness. The reason they did is because we were having more problems with patients re having adverse reactions to our prophylaxis than they were developing disease. They've narrowed it really down for the high-risk groups, and this is really simple now. I know it looks like it's long, but it's really not. If you narrow this down. Artificial heart valve, that one makes sense. If you've got an artificial valve, you need to be prophylaxed. Prior endocarditis, that one makes sense. Now, anybody with congenital heart disease, whether it's unrepaired, repaired with prostatic, or repaired with residual defect, all of them with heart, congenital heart disease needs prophylaxis, and then transplant. So you've got congenital heart disease, transplant, artificial valve, or endocarditis. Narrowed it down to now four groups. So prior history of endocarditis, artificial valve, congenital heart disease, or transplant. Those are the only groups. We don't uh, prophylax people with mitral valve prolapse anymore. At least not according to the guidelines. Now if you look at the procedures, you can narrow those down too. Dental, tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy. So mouth, that's because our mouths are really dirty. Respiratory tract, intestinal tract, GI, abdominal. So I usually tell people just remember anything that has to do with the mouth, anything that has to do with the abdomen. So that's GI or GU, okay? And then soft tissue. So anything in the mouth, respiratory, anything in the abdominal area, and then infected soft tissue. So it's still a pretty big list, but you can narrow it down a little bit. The biggest changes were in the high risk groups. And here's the options. Um, 
if they're uh, oral or unable to take oral, whether they're allergic to penicillin or not, still the treatment of choice, if they can tolerate it, is a penicillin, amoxicillin or ampicillin for prophylaxis. If that doesn't work, you can use the cephalosporins, but if they're allergic to, I mean, if they're allergic to penicillins, the problem is, you know, that most of the patients, if they have a type one a hypersensitivity reaction to penicillin, odds are they're gonna be allergic to the cephalosporins as well, then you may have to go to clindamycin or erythromycin. Now, watch with clindamycin, the big side effect with clindamycin is Clostridium difficile infection or pseudomembranous colitis. Okay, pulmonary, acute uh, bronchitis. This is infection of the upper airways. Uh, don't assume on the exam that when you're taking it is the time of year. If it's important, they'll put it in the question. And when they put in, there's two things that when they put them in the question, they're kind of giving away things. One is occupation, okay? Your patient is a shipbuilder, okay? Just go circle asbestosis, okay? Your person is a sandblaster, oh, just go circle uh, silicosis. When they give you occupation, it's a giveaway. When they give you time of year, they're giving something away. Okay? Otherwise, they just don't put it in there. They don't put it in every question. The other one is ethnicity. In the old days, they used to put it in every question. This is a 35-year-old Caucasian male. They don't do that anymore. So now when they give you ethnicity, if they say African-American, look for sickle cell or, I mean, it's just, it's gotten to the point where when they put some of that stuff in there, they're almost giving the questions away because it's important. So if they start talking about winter, spring, you might want to be thinking about some of these pulmonary infections. Most acute bronchitis is due to viruses, uh, adenovirus, influenza, some bacteria, Bordetella, pertussis, Haemophilus, Mycoplasma, Moraxella. Almost always um, this will follow a upper respiratory tract infection. They'll say person had uh, rhinorrhea, coryza, uh, scratchy throat, or pharyngitis, and now develops this cough that comes with acute bronchitis. But they're almost all viral, so no antibiotics. Cough preceded by nasal congestion, sore throat, sneezing, as I mentioned, uh, maybe some rails on exam, chest x-rays normal. They're going to want to see if you can separate this out from a pneumonia. And really the only way to do that is going to be on the chest x-ray. Treatment, DC smoking, supportive care, hydration, really no antibiotics. The only person who should get antibiotics for an acute bronchitis is the person who has chronic COPD. So if this is an acute exacerbation of their chronic bronchitis, they need antibiotics. But anybody, I'm assuming nobody in here has COPD, okay? I didn't see anybody smoking earlier, okay? So we don't need antibiotics for this. I know everybody wants to give it to them, but we don't need antibiotics. Acute bronchiolitis, this is infection inflammation of the smaller airways, RSV, typically seen in kids. Uh, diffuse wheezing, variable fever. The reason I put this one in here is because they put wheezing in a question, it doesn't mean asthma. It can even mean heart failure. All that wheezes is not asthma, okay? And just because there's not wheezing in the question doesn't mean it couldn't be asthma. What do you have to have to have wheezing? You gotta have turbulent airflow. What if they're a status asthmaticus and they're not moving any air at all? Well, no air movement, no turbulence, no wheezing. So I tend to tell people then you gotta look at the patient. So if they tell you that there's no wheezing but their lips are cyanotic on you know, six liters of oxygen, that's not a good thing, okay? So exam, hyperinflation, crackles, usually based on physical exam and RSV, bronchodilators to the wheezing, and then ribovirin, this is the one virus uh, where treatment is actually beneficial, uh, ribovirin for the RSV. 
Don't confuse this one with bronchiolitis, bronchiolitis with bronchiectasis. Bronchiectasis is seen in the person who has recurrent pneumonias, especially patients with cystic fibrosis who get recurrent uh, pseudomonas infections. That's, they get torturous airways. They actually break down their airway because of the recurrent infections. Influenza, uh, I think we've all seen that in the last couple years. Uh, abrupt onset of fever, myalgias, headache, nonproductive cough. I don't know what's happened in all my photos here. Uh, exam's normal. This is one of the uh, weirder infections, though, when it comes to labs. Um, most viral infections and bacteria cause a leukocytosis. Influenza doesn't. It causes a leukopenia, actually. And usually when you think viral, you think increased white count, increased lymphocytes. That doesn't work so much here either. And when you think bacterial, it's increased white count, increased neutrophils. So influenza is a little bit different this way. Chest x-ray is normal, uh, viral culture for diagnosis. Treatment, usually symptomatic. Influenza A, you can use amantadine or romantadine. Remember, these two drugs uh, are not great in the elderly or patients with seizures. And if you don't treat them early on with any of these antivirals, it's not gonna make a difference anyway. No antibiotics unless there's a secondary bacterial infection. The most common secondary bacterial infection is gonna be a pneumonia due to staph. Staph is a very common cause of pneumonia post-influenza. And then you're gonna to wanna to treat them for whatever you would normally give for staph pneumonia, which in most cases would be one of the penicillins or vancomycin. Pneumonia, inflammation of the airway, acquired versus uh, community versus acquired. Lots of different organisms here, a lot of them viral. Uh, bacterial, strep, haemophilus, so strep pneumoniae, haemophilus influenza, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Moraxella cateralis, uh, chlamydia, there's histo, there's pneumocystis. Pneumocystis you would worry about in HIV patients. This can help you on the exam for if they give you uh, risk factors. So they tell you that it's a 60-year-old alcoholic presents with a productive cough. They're trying to get you to think about Klebsiella pneumoniae. If they're, they don't give you anything, number one cause is strep pneumoniae. If they're a smoker, COPD, haemophilus influenza. If they tell you about a water source, maybe they were just at a Marriott. Um, I'm kidding. You're not all gonna get Legionella. Um, actually, I forget what hotel it was. It was the American Legion Group in 1976, but uh, if there's a water source, that's Legionella. Uh, and then if it's post-influenza, as I mentioned, that's Staph uh, aureus. Other things that can be helpful are what some of the symptoms are and also the signs. Legionella uh, also will usually have an elevated in liver function test as well. Other things I can tell you from the history, as I mentioned, uh, smoking, COPD, strep pneumo, you'll see strep pneumo in most of these, haemophilus. Nursing home residents, what happens in nursing homes is you change from your normal flora, oral flora, from um, anaerobes and some gram positives to gram negatives. So that's why they get the gram negative bacilli. Alcoholism, we mentioned exposure to bats, histo, so if they tell you in the question the patient was been spelunking or day, cave diving, they probably got histo. Exposure to birds, crypto, especially bird poop, is cryptococcus. If it's just sick birds, it's probably chlamydia. Um, history of influenza, we mentioned. Cystic fibrosis, scissor uh, pseudomonas aeruginosa and pseudomonas cepatia. You actually need to change that. It's not pseudomonas cepatia anymore. It's Burkholderia cepatia. Same group of fam same thing, but they just changed the names. Um, but pseudomonas for cystic fibrosis patients. IV drug abusers, aspiration is almost always anaerobes, and then HIV AIDS is pneumocystis. You're gonna have to be able to look at some of the patterns here. If it's a low bar infiltrate, 
Um, think Streptomonia, Haemophilus, or Legionella's, where it's just the density in a certain lobe. If it's more of a patchy uh, bronchopulmonary type of pattern, that tends to be the viruses, the atypicals. If you start seeing um, interstitial pneumonia, uh, diffuse, usually bilaterally, uh, once again, influenza, CMV, but this is classic for PCP as well, pneumocystis. Another very common x-ray finding for pneumocystis is normal. So if they give you an HIV patient who's got pulmonary complaints but a normal chest x-ray, that does not rule out PCP. And then lung abscess, um, oh, and this is another little thing to remind me too. See these arrows? They won't be on the exam, okay? You laugh, but I've had people ask me in my courses, will the arrows be on the exam? No, that kind of defeats the purpose, okay? Uh, but uh, I left them on here. You can see the air fluid level in this nice cavitary lesion. Usually if there's a lung abscess, it's an anaerobe. Nodular, one of two things you think, well, infectious-wise, you think of histo, coccidioides, crypto, usually think of fungal when you see all these nodules. The other one to worry about is metastatic disease to the lungs, cancer from somewhere else. So if you get this nodular pattern throughout uh, both lung fields or even just one, it could be fungal, but it could also be metastatic disease. Community acquired, uh, gram-positive cocci, um, strep, if it's gram, tiny gram-negative rods, hemophilus, if it's gram-positive cocci in clusters, uh, it's uh, staph, and if it's large gram-negative rods, it's Klebsiella, usually cough, productive, green-yellow sputum. You guys know what makes the sputum yellow and green? The green is due to the myeloperoxidase in the white cells. It changes the color of the sputum. I don't think that'll be on the exam, though. Well, if it is, you get it right now. Um, chest x-ray or white count will be elevated with a left shift, sputum culture with gram stain. Uh, they can give you gram stain photos now, and they're really clear, or they'll maybe just give you the gram stain. They'll tell you a patient's got a productive cough, Gram stain of the sputum shows increased number of white blood cells and gr tiny gram-negative rods. They're trying to get you to think hemophilus. So you're going to have to be able to do the gram stains uh, for a lot of the major organisms, which I don't think you guys would have any trouble with. Treatment-wise, antibiotics, oxygen, uh, hospitalization depends. If there's no comorbid conditions, if they don't have diabetes, if they don't have heart failure, if they don't have renal failure, if there's no comorbid conditions, if they don't have COPD, you can treat them as an outpatient and you got two choices. You can use a macrolide, such as uh, azithromycin or clarithromycin, or a fluoroquinolone. I know it still lists doxy and amoxicillin, you can still do those, but these are the two drugs of choice right here, macrolides or fluoroquinolones. If they do have a comorbid, the question is, are they stable or not? Is the comorbid under stable conditions? So if they have diabetes, but it's well controlled, you can still treat them as an outpatient. If they have COPD and they're exacerbating, then you're gonna to wanna to treat them as an inpatient. And then inpatient treatment is an IV beta-lactam. Uh, I prefer ceftriaxone, which is rocephin, plus a macrolide. So a rocephin, or a cephalosporin plus azithromycin or clarithromycin, or a fluoroquinolone alone. Um, and most of these, you can IV uh, cephalosporin, an oral macrolide, and then either an IV or oral fluoroquinolone. Remember the fluoroquinolones, if you give them orally, have 80% of the drug level that you would do IV. Okay, so outpatient, macrolide or a fluoroquinolone is a single agent. Inpatient, either a cephalosporin plus a macrolide or a fluoroquinolone alone. 
If you're worried about pseudomonas for either one of these as a cause, then I would give them a fluoroquinolone because the macrolides are not great for pseudomonas coverage, uh, not as good as the fluoroquinolones are, and the cephalosporins, unless you pick a certain cephalosporin from the third generation, ceftazidime, you're not gonna get very good pseudomonas coverage. So if you're worried about pseudomonas, let's say they give you a pneumonia in a cystic fibrosis patient, fluoroquinolone. Atypicals, these are mycoplasma, the viruses, chlamydia, Legionnaire's disease, um, low fever, pulmonary complaints, typically young, healthy adults. This will be the 20-year-old college student presents with, okay? Non-productive cough, increased white count, uh, gram stain will be negative. It'll show tons of white cells, but no bacteria. Because Legionella doesn't stain really well, chlamydia doesn't stain, viruses don't stain, and mycoplasma don't stain. Treatment, macrolides for the mycoplasma. Uh, we talked about influenza already. Chlamydia, tetracycline. Uh, little key here on the exam. Um, when in doubt, if they give you something, you go, you know, or a weird organism or a weird infection, when in doubt, pick a tetracycline. What causes Lyme disease? Bordella burdorfii, right? Tetracycline. What causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever? Rickettsia rickettsii. How do you treat it? Tetracycline. That was taught to me by an infectious disease specialist. We were watching some residents get pimped one day on rounds. We were seeing another patient, and he, we, were watching, we were laughing at him uh, as they were getting pimped, and he said, you know, all they got to do is answer tetracycline. And I said, really? He says, yeah. So he gave me all these examples, and he says, 80 to 90% of the time, you're going to be right. And he's right. You look at all the weird organisms. It may not be the drug of choice, but it's there. So when in doubt in the exam, pitch tetracycline. Hospital-acquired most common cause here is aspiration, so they're going to aspirate gram-negative rods. It's typically going to be right lower lobe because that's the way the bronchus, uh, they actually go straighter on the right side, they angle a little more on the left, so you're going to see right lower lobe infiltrates. Cough, fever, shortness of breath, tend to be elderly. Watch for questions where they say nursing home patient, post-stroke patient, anybody who can't maintain their airway. The worst one of these I ever saw was, this is a time where I'd actually like to have sued the family for malpractice. The guy was post-stroke, had big thing written on his, the sign above his bed that said, do not give anything orally. He was talking, he was doing, doing better, but still wasn't ready. He loved Burger King. And where I worked in Michigan at the time, there was a Burger King right across the street from the hospital. The family went and got him a double cheeseburger. He aspirated it and died two days later from a massive infection. And it's one of those times you wish you could sue the family. They had the audacity to blame us. Okay? It's not like we said NPO above the bed. We said nothing by mouth. Okay? We didn't use the abbreviations because families don't know what NPO means. Treatment here, antibiotics, you've got to cover gram negatives. So usually you're adding uh, an aminoglycoside to this and watch for ARDS in these patients. RSV, we've talked about a little bit already when we talked about uh, bronchiectasis, uh, mainly in kids. Uh, diffuse wheezing, RSV will be positive, treatment is ribovirin, uh, watch for the secondary uh, infections. I'm not going to go through all the antivirals, I put this in here more that you could look at the slides later on the PDF, and we've talked about some of these a little bit already. Oh, ribovirin, the one thing I do want to point out here is it is contraindicated in pregnancy because of its uh, teratogenic uh, effects. Tuberculosis, mycobacterium tuberculosis, respiratory droplet spread, uh, most patients, thank goodness, don't develop disease. Here's the gram or acid fast bacilli. 
uh, positive PPD. The gold standard is culture. Anytime it's an infectious thing, the, standard, the gold standard for diagnosis is culture. If the smear is positive on the question, it's presumptive positive for TB. It's not diagnostic. There are some other mycobacterium species that are acid fast positive that aren't TB. Um, now, PPD results, once again, if you look at the original list of this on the CDC website, it is huge. What I've tried to do is narrow it down for you again. Um, anything greater than five is anybody who's immunocompromised. So HIV, patients with TB, old TB, organ transplant, or other immunosuppressed. So always think of immunosuppressed patients or TB patients or exposure to TB less than five, greater than five is positive. We're talking about the induration, not the erythema. So the raised part, not the red part. Greater than, oh, that's, they all say greater than five. This one in the middle should say greater than 10, and the other one should say greater than 15. That bugs me. I'm gonna change it right now. Doesn't mean it changed on your slides, but. Now, if you look at the middle group of greater than 10, those are all people who are increased uh, exposure, which includes us as healthcare providers, okay? If I can get the show back on here. So that's all of us, greater than 10. So IV drug abusers, those of us at high risk exposures, clinical conditions, and then children. So those are the people who are greater than 10, the people who are at a high risk for exposure. And then everybody else is greater than 15. So greater than five, immunocompromised, greater than 10, increased exposure risk, and everybody else is greater than 15. So I just took a whole bunch of stuff from the CDC website and summed it up into one sentence for you. And hopefully you can remember that one easier than their big list. Chest x-ray usually likes the upper lobes because there's lower oxygen tension there. Mycobacterium is a microaerophilic organism. It likes oxygen, just not a lot of it. So it prefers the apices of the lungs. You cannot use a chest x-ray to make, confirm the diagnosis, only culture again. This is the treatment options from um, the CDC. Um, the only thing I wanna point out here, um, all these, what you gotta do here, the next slide, I thought this one had the treatment on it. No. Um, for treatment of tuberculosis, the key thing is multiple drugs to start. If you've got a known possible TB positive patient, multiple drugs, isoniazide, rifampin, ethambutol, four or five drugs at once, because you're worried about multi-drug resistant TB. Once you get the diagnosis and they grow it in culture, they'll do sensitivities, then you can narrow it down. If you're trying to treat somebody because their skin test is positive, it's still two drugs at least, isoniazide and rifampin. And then after a short period of time, then you can decrease them to just one drug. So isoniazide, nine month for latent, six month regime is less effective. You gotta give it twice daily. Most places now you actually have to go get the isoniazide because they wanna make sure that you take it along with your other drugs. Oh, here's the treatment one. So start everybody off with multiple drugs and then depending on what happens to the cultures, switch them to just INH or rifampin, uh, and that's usually the treatment for all of them. So you start them all off with at least two months of four to five drugs, and then you switch them for two more months to just isoniazide and rifampin. Obstructive lung diseases, this is the mechanisms. Chronic bronchitis is too much secretions, emphysema is damage to the parenchyma support, and asthma is inflammation. 
asthma, uh, chronic inflammatory disease of the airways, you've got to have airway obstruction, hyperreactivity and inflammation, persistent wheezing, these are the categories. Now, once again, if you look at the uh, NIH website uh, for these categories, the chart is huge. And I've tried to really narrow it down again to make it easier to remember for the exam. Because you're going to have to be able to tell where somebody is and where they're going because you're going to have to be able to adjust their treatment. It's really not that difficult, though. Because of laboratory findings here, uh, decreased FEV1 that improves with bronchodilators. Remember, this is an obstructive pattern. FEV1 is your obstructive rest, uh, pulmonary function test. If it's restrictive, that's FVC, FEV1 for, restrict, or for obstruction. Uh, positive methylcholine challenge test, though they're difficult to do. Eosinophilia can be present. Uh, treatment, beta agonists, long and short term acting, leukotriene antagonists. Mast cell stabilizers like chromalin only used um, not for acute uh, treatment. It's only used prophylactically because once you've got the release of the histamines from the basophils and the eosinophils, it's too late for the mast cell stabilizers to work. So these can only be used prior to the asthma attack. The cornerstone of all this treatment, though, for acute exacerbations is steroids. Um, now, this is the managing the stepwise fashion. This is why you've got to know whether you're going from step one to step two to step three to step four, whether you're going from intermittent to persistent asthma. The key thing to remember here is in the question, not only will they have to describe to you what their symptoms are, where you've got to go from one stage to the next, that's great, but don't really worry about it because they're also going to have to tell you what drugs they're on. And if from the gist of the question you know they're getting worse, which is usually pretty obvious, just do the next step, okay? So if all they're on in the question is uh, PRN beta agonists like albuterol, the next step is inhaled corticosteroids, no matter what, okay? So just, it's, and it's all written on the chart here, so this is a PRN uh, beta agonist, then you add a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. And if they're after that, it's low-dose steroids plus a long-acting beta agonist and then a medium dose inhaled corticosteroid. You don't get to oral corticosteroids until you get way up here to step six. So just add whatever's next. Rarely they could ask a question where somebody goes from step one all the way to step six. That would be really unusual. But once again, I think it would be given away in the question. You know, the person has gotten so bad. You know, they're uh, wheezing and their O2 sats are low and they just look awful. They're in respiratory distress then you might jump up a little higher. But all of these are, next step is inhaled corticosteroids. So you don't even need to remember a whole lot for the exam. Now in real life, yeah, I'm sorry. But for the exam, just add the next step. It makes it that much easier on the exam. Chronic bronchitis, this is excessive sputum production with chronic or recurring cough most days for a minimum of three months of a year for at least two consecutive years. That's the official diagnosis. Uh, don't worry about the pathology so much. This is your blue bloater. You guys remember the blue bloater and pink puffer? This is the blue bloater, okay? A lot of thick copious secretions. They're usually obese, cyanotic, tachycardic, show signs of right-sided heart failure. This is the person who gets core pulmonale, okay? Ascites, coarse bronchi, wheezing. This is our blue bloater. They'll have an obstructive pattern again, decreased FEV1. I guarantee there'll be a question on there somewhere. Either it'll be the, the full answer, it'll be part of a question is they're gonna give you a pulmonary function test 
and it'll be an obstructive pattern, and for some reason you won't pick an obstructive disease. I don't know why, okay? If they give an obstructive pattern, pick one of the obstructive diseases. That's why they're called chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases, okay? People forget that. Asthma, chronic bronchitis, and emphysema are all obstructive. So if they give you an obstructive pattern, it's one of those three. Now, you may have to use some other pieces of information on the exam to figure out which one it is. If they tell you they've got a 65-pack year smoking history, just go for emphysema. Treatment here, stop smoking, beta agonists, the anticholinergics, uh, such as Atrovent, uh, theophylline, steroids. I doubt they would ask you questions about theophylline on the exam, about adding theophylline because it changes from week to week on whether it's indicated or not. So don't worry about that one too much, but they might be on it. Emphysema, this is actual destruction of the septa of the airways uh, due to proteolytic enzymes smoking. Alpha-1 antitrypsin is a genetic disorder. The other thing with alpha-1 antitrypsin you have to worry about not only is emphysema, but it's liver disease. It's one of the metabolic liver diseases that causes cirrhosis. Alpha-1 antitrypsin, Wilson's disease, and hemochromatosis. So, an alpha-1 antitrypsin, an iron problem, and a copper problem. Emphysema, this is our pink puffer. So thin, cachectic, pursed lip breathing, barrel chest. This is the one where the chest x-ray will be continued on the next chest x-ray because their chests are so big. Okay. Treatment, or uh, labs again, PFTs, obstructive pattern, hyperinflation, flat diaphragms. You can see how this diaphragm should be like this how flat it is, this chest is just huge. You should not see this much airspace in front of the heart, okay? Treatment again, stop smoking, uh, albuterol, atrovent, uh, theophylline steroids again, oxygen. And here's just a table comparing the pink puffer and the blue bloater uh, side by side for you. PE, uh, gonna be questions on PEs on the exam. These are thrombi from the venous circulation to the right side of the heart. Most of them uh, come from the deep veins in the legs. There's the risk factors for you. Watch for the patient where they give you what looks like a PE, but they give you a rhythm strip. They're giving you that rhythm strip because it's probably atrial fibrillation, and that's the risk factor they're telling you about. Okay, So they're asking you to interpret the EKG so that you can identify a risk factor for this possible pulmonary embolism. So this is how they can bang out a couple of concepts in one question, okay? Pleuritic chest pain, dyspnea, hemoptysis, uh, even fever, the two most common things, if they don't have chest pain and dyspnea, it ain't PE, can't be, at least for exam purposes, okay? This is one of the most commonly missed diagnoses in clinical practice. Um, I do malpractice review on the side. This is the one I get more cases to review on PEs than probably anything else. Um, ABGs, uh, hypoxemia, hypocapnia, wide AA gradient, they're not gonna give you this AA gradient, but what they might tell you is that um, on room air, their pulse ox was 90%, and on four liters, their pulse ox was 90%. That means they got a wide AA gradient. That means they've got some problem with diffusion because if you put somebody on four to six liters of oxygen, what should their O2 sat do? It should be like 100%. Even per us, right now, we're probably going around 98 to 99%. You put us on four liters, we'll go up to 100. So if they don't change, that tells you they're having some perfusion ventilation issue. Um, EKG classic is S1Q3T3. Uh, that's seen in less than 25% of cases though. Uh, chest, oops, chest x-ray is normal, D-dimer, 
uh, ultrasound of lower extremity. Here's the uh, findings of uh, the EKG, the S wave, uh, the Q wave, and the flipped T waves. Um, TAS, VQ scan, angiography, spiral CT. Um, I only bring this up, I'm not gonna go through each one of these. I bring this up because people always ask me, well, if they ask me about a PE, what's the gold standard test? Angiography is really the gold standard because when you look even at spiral CT, what do they compare it to? Angiography. But at some point in the future here, we're gonna see spiral CT become the test of choice. If they ask you on an exam, what, if they give you both angiography and spiral CT, I would pick angiography unless there's a contraindication, okay? And that might be something like uh, the person is acutely ill or uh, allergic to contrast material or um, to the, I mean, I guess if they're allergic to contrast material, you're gonna have trouble with the spiral CT as well. But watch for that. But angiography is still the gold standard. Um, spiral CT scan is pretty high dose radiation. I had a patient once that got admitted to the ER. They thought he had a PE, so they gave him a spiral CT. It was negative. We admitted him to the hospital. That night he had another episode of chest pain. They did another spiral CT, and it was negative. The next day we did another spiral. The guy had three spiral CTs in less than 24 hours. So that was equivalent to about 400 chest x-rays. He was glowing in the dark by the time he was done. Treatment, anticoagulation, anticoagulation, anticoagulation. Even before you've made the diagnosis, for sure, watch for that on the question. Uh, heparin, Coumadin, at least for three months. If those don't work or if you're worried about recurrence, Greenfield filter, uh, heparin or low molecular weight heparin. You're going to have to start everybody out on heparin uh, and then start them on Coumadin. You've got to have an overlap here for a couple of days. Okay, GI. And in uh, about another half hour or so, we'll take our break. I know, this is long. How do you think I feel? Um, peptic ulcer disease, big thing here is um, H. pylori. Don't forget about ANSAIDs, though. Uh, not so much peptic ulcer disease as drug-induced gastritis. Okay? Any drug can do it, but ANSAIDs are really good at it. Even more so with drugs, watch for in esophagitis, especially in the elderly. They tend to take a lot of pills and they don't drink a lot of water with them, so the pills sit there in their esophagus and the matrix just breaks down their GI lining. Deep gnawing pain, usually seen about one to three hours after eating, awaken them at night, relief with food. One of the classic things is gonna be regurgitation. Um, if they show peritoneal signs, it looks like an acute abdomen, it means their esophageal ulcer has ruptured. And now they're dumping acid and gastric contents into their abdomen. Um, we'll talk a minute about H. pylori testing. Uh, CBC only for working up the anemia if they're anemic. Uh, EGD with biopsy to, uh, for diagnosis. Lifestyle modifications, which includes getting the head of the bed up, not eating a couple hours before you go to bed, avoiding all caffeine, chocolates. I know all the good things in life, okay? Um, antacids, most of the patients will have already tried those on their own the Rolaids, the over-the-counter stuff, H2 blockers like uh, cimetidine and Tagamet, and then the proton pump inhibitors such as Omeprazole. This is for H. pylori treatment. Uh, the key thing here to remember is you've gotta give everybody an acid suppressor, um, usually a proton pump inhibitor. You've gotta give everybody at least one standard antibiotic and then a salvage antibiotic. So almost everybody is gonna get either triple therapy or quadruple therapy. Uh, bismuth compounds work great for this, as a matter of fact, uh, and they're dirt cheap, too. 
Um, now there is a drug that has all of these in one pill. It's pretty expensive, but you can do it that way. Uh, but just realize you have to have a uh, acid suppressor and two antibiotics at least. ZE syndrome, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, this is a gastrin tumor in the pancreas that causes uh, refractory peptic ulcer disease. They, get one, they don't get one ulcer, they don't get two ulcers, they get hundreds of ulcers in their gut and in their duodenum. And the test of choice here is elevated gastrin levels. EGD will show multiple ulcers. Treatment, proton pump inhibitor, surgical resection. If you're gonna give them a PPI, you start them at the max dose right away. This is not, well, I'll put you on 20. If you don't get better, I'll put you on 40. If you don't get better, I'll put you on 80. Just put them on 80, and hopefully they'll get better. They may not. But ZE, multiple ulcers, elevated gastrin. Hepatitis, uh, inflammation of the hepatocytes. You get, uh, there's five uh, viruses. Don't forget about toxins. Most common one is Tylenol, okay? A lot of drugs can lead to drug-induced hepatitis. Um, but there's five viruses, A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, we thought we had F, but we found out it was E. We do have G, but we discovered that after we thought we had F. So we can't go back and renumber G, F, so we're not gonna have an F. So we're gonna have hepatitis A, B, C, D, E, and G, but don't worry about G yet for the exam, okay? Skin and scleras are enteric, there's hepatomegaly, uh, dark urine, or light urine, light stools, dark urine, elevated AST and ALT. These are the transaminases, okay? If you're old school, it was SGPT and SGOT, okay? These are gonna be markedly, markedly, markedly elevated, 10 to 20 times normal. Normal range for both of those is about up to 40, so you're talking about AST and ALTs in the 400 to 600 range, if not higher. Prothrombin time will go up. Remember, clotting factors are made in the liver. So one of the first tests that will go up could be the prothrombin time, and then we'll talk about the serology testing. Hepatitis A is transmitted fecal-oral uh, or through raw shellfish. Anybody, did you have anybody have, uh, I mean, you're in Washington, D.C., ocean's right here. Anybody have some shrimp or whatever, oysters? Might want to check your sclera in a couple of days, okay? Um, this is why I don't do sushi. Uh, this and Vibrio perihemolyticus. Uh, incubation periods 20 to 40 days. Uh, treatment is that there is a vaccine. Serology testing here. Uh, the big thing you're going to notice the hepatitis A virus actually in your stool, but the first thing you're going to look for is the anti HAV. This is the virus or the antibody uh, for hepatitis A, and that's what you'll discover. That's what you'll be testing for. Hepatitis B, this is uh, bloodborne. Uh, so through blood or body fluid, sexual contact. The thing to remember about A, no chronic disease. Okay, A cannot form chronic disease, only acute. B can, you can have acute and chronic. Um, now, when it comes to the uh, testing here, this can be a little complicated. The first one that's gonna be positive is hepatitis B surface antigen. Remember, the, this is, think about this as you're going through the virus. You start with the surface, Okay, then you go to an envelope and then you get to the core. So as this is the way the antibodies appear, so or the antigen, the testing appears. So the first one you do is hepatitis B surface antigen. Then what happens is the antigen, hepatitis B E antigen, because remember we're working our way into the organism. So B surface and then B E antigen. If all they are is hepatitis B surface antigen positive, that means they have an acute infection right now. 
If their B surface antigen is positive and their BE antigen is positive, they are acutely infected now and they're highly infectious. Okay? The first, there is no B core antigen, hepatitis B core antigen. There isn't one. You can't measure one. It's too deep in the molecule to really measure. We tend to measure our antibody to it though. So the next test you're going to get positive is going to be anti-hepatitis B core, so the antibody here. Then you're going to develop the envelope and then the surface. So once again, going in, surface, envelope, core, coming out, core, envelope, surface. Easy way to remember them. So going in is antigens, except for core, because we can't get one. Coming out is antibodies. Easy way to remember how they're going to appear. If all the person has positive is anti-hepatitis B surface, so the antibody, that means they've been immunized. Because if they had infection, their core would be positive along with the surface. So if just surface antibody is present, which it should be in all of us, we should have all been vaccinated, that means we were vaccinated. If your surface antibody is positive and your core antibody is positive, that means you've had an infection in the distant past. If only your antigens are positive, then you've got an acute infection, or you could become chronic as well. The chronic person will stay hepatitis B surface antigen and E antigen positive, and they won't develop any antibodies. That's the chronic person, and that's the one you really don't want to see. So here's all the markers in a table. I'm not going to go through each one of these. I just did quite a few of them. Uh, here's the one we talked about with the positive anti-hepatitis B surface, the passive immunity. C, this used to be post-transfusion, used to be non-A, non-B, hepatitis, for those of you who are old school. Um, transmitted by blood and body fluids again. Most of these patients, 70% of them will develop chronic hepatitis. So B can go chronic, C can go chronic, A cannot. Serology here, hepatitis B surf, or hepatitis C antibody. Um, and then treatment is alpha interferon and ribavirin as a treatment. This one is linked to hepatocellular carcinoma development, as is B, but mainly C. The other one's D is delta. You can only get D if you got B. So if you've been vaccinated against B, you can't get D. But it can become chronic as well because B becomes chronic. Hepatitis E, no chronic disease again. Transmitted. I think of E as A's brother. A is more common, but E is the same thing. It's fecal oral, food and water, no chronic disease, but there's no tests for E. And here's just a table again to try to get you to put all of them together in one spot. Infectious diarrhea, always a nice topic this early in the morning. I just got back from Vegas where I did a bunch of talks there at the national meeting. They made me do my infectious diarrhea right after lunch. That always goes over really well, by the way. Um, increased volume or liquidity, liquidity of stool, um, anything greater than uh, normal, you know what the average bowel movement is per day? About 250 grams. You want to know how to remember that? This is gross. It's two king-size Baby Ruth bars. Okay. You may say, that's disgusting. I bet you if you come back here in two, three years and I ask you that same thing, you'll go, two big king-size baby Ruth bars. I guarantee you'll remember it now, okay? It's not so important about the volume as it is what's a change in for that patient. 
okay? Don't use yourself as normal, okay? The person said they have 